So question 146, what is Christian marriage? And I'm not going to ask you to answer it, but Christian marriage or holy matrimony is a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman, uniting them in self-giving love, joy, and faithfulness. So the catechism is quite clear that uh, monogamy between one man and one woman is the standard for Christian marriage. Um, and, you know, this has been the case all through Christian history. And, and it's only been lately that that's been challenged. Um, for a lot of reasons, and I, don't, I won't get into them now, but, but this is the current kind of, um, uh, th I think there are really two main uh, issues that the church is really fighting through in the modern world, and, and one of them is just simply this question of identity, right? It's a big, huge, glaring question, like, what is a human being, right? And, and therefore, that, and that actually asks another question, which is, what is a, what is a flourishing human being, right? Because from the, from the Christian perspective, human beings are made in the image of God, and this means that they're made to be like God. Actually, I would even say made to be God, right? So theosis plays a major role in this. Divinization plays a major role in this. And so if it's, our, if it's our calling as human beings to live into the person of Jesus Christ, um, then that gives you a certain vision for human flourishing, right? If your vision for human flourishing is that of a reasonable scientist who uh, reaches material self-actualization, then that is what it will be, right? Um, and part of the struggle is that we have, these, we have these competing views of what human flourishing looks like. Um, and therefore, we have competing views as to what the flourishing of human society looks like. Um, and so those are, those are big questions to sort of lay out there. Um, I don't think it actually does us any good to try to hold both the kind of highly secularized, atomized version of human flourishing alongside the Christian version um, because they are actually opposed, right? So one of the things that, that we should know, and I'm probably going up into the kind of I'm leaving catechetical territory and heading into, and, and heading into philosophical territory, but it's fine. Um, you all are very smart. Um, the... What, what Charles Taylor calls the, the atomized self is this idea that, um, that human beings are, are, uh, are actually meant to be kind of cordoned off from any external pr pressures at all, any external influence. Um, to thine own self be true is the kind of thing, right? And, and no one else. In the Christian understanding, it's actually when we get outside ourselves, when, we, when, we, um, when we're drawn to... Uh, someone else, and that someone else being in particular Jesus Christ, that we are actually actualized. Um, marriage actually shows us this in a very clear way, and it's not to say that if you're not married, you can't do this. It's to say that um, marriage shows us what this is like um, as an image of Christ and his church. Um, so uniting them in self-giving love. So self-giving love is a, is a very foreign concept in a lot of ways today. This idea that you would outpour yourself for another. Um, joy. Does joy mean happiness? You should know the answer to this already. No, not at all. Like <laughs> joy, joy is actually uh, something which um, external factors and external um, uh, uh, stimuli don't alter. Joy is because joy is joy is the gift of God, um, and it and it and it is sustained by God. Um, it's actually really sustained by hope. Um, and faithfulness. It is ordained by God for the procreation and spiritual nurture of children. So this is the go forth, uh, be fruitful and multiply. The fruitfulness is about the spiritual nurture. 
multiply is about procreation. Um, when this command is given, it's some, sometimes called the first commandment in scriptures, go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. Um, and it's to say that one of the things that's actually been lost in, um, in understandings of marriage swirling around us is the idea that marriage is given for the procreation of children. Which, listen, I mean, you don't have to be a genius to figure this one out. Like, man and woman come together, they tend to, I mean, God has made it so that they tend to conceive children, right? Um, but this has been set aside, um, primarily because we've developed technology that's allowed it to be set aside. Um, and then we think, well, that's the norm in nature, but it's not. Um, and, and part of that issue is that we've now conceived of this idea of a non-procreative marriage being the norm, at least in terms of how we think about it, right? So procreations, we can say, oh, it's okay, it's good, it's, you know, it's something some people do, okay? Um, but, but it's not necessary to marriage. From the Christian perspective, it is necessary to marriage. And that doesn't mean that if a couple can't conceive children, they're not really married. It doesn't mean their marriage is deficient. It means that that's what God intends, and we can see that in nature. Okay? Um, just because your body can't do the things that normally happen in nature doesn't mean that you're deficient <laughs> um, and, and doesn't mean that you can't really be married. That's not the point. Um, the point is that, uh, that um, we see in the created order this tendency... And this is all natural law is, really. It's, it's observing the natural ends of things and then saying, well, we can make judgments about what happens, um, about, about whether something is right or wrong, depending upon the, the effect on those natural outcomes. Okay, that's all natural law is ever saying. It's simply those things. It's, it's a kind of two-premise system. Um, it's, yeah. Okay, so you good so far? The next one is the mutual support of their common life and the, the flourishing of family, church, and society. Um, so actually, those things are, are ordered properly, family, church, and society, right? The sanctification of husband and wife, um, the mutual support of their common life, okay? So first, we say that marriage is given for the sanctification of husband and wife, okay? uh, and this is not a focus that many people think about today, but the reality of it is marriage will make you holy if you stick with it. Um, <laughs> if you try to walk away from it, things go really badly, usually. Um, and not only that, and, and granted, I will just grant you, there are times when people need to separate for a time. There are times even when people need to find, need to enter into a legal divorce. However, that does not negate the fact that sticking with a difficult marriage will lead to sanctification. Um, even sticking with a kind of normal and happy marriage will make you sanctified. Why? Well, let me just say it. It's next to impossible to be selfish and be married. Like, it really does force all the selfishness out of you. Because you can't do that. Like, everything that you do uh, affects the other. All right. I realize I'm saying this to a bunch of people who aren't married. So, you know, you hear that. You know, if you're thinking about, like, what, what it might be like to be married, that's one of the things you should think about is, you know, and, and as you discern that, do you really want that? It's the question of, like, do I really want to be sanctified in that way? Um, because, listen, if you're not going to be sanctified married, then you're going to be sanctified single. And that's got its own burdens. Let's just say that, too. It's got its own big burdens. All right. The mutual support of their common life. So this is, like, the mundane things. It's like, how do we share dish duty? 
in the house? Like, how do we share the financial duties? How do we share this? How do we share that? How does that work out? Um, and, and those things work together to the benefit of, of uh, husband and wife. The, the thing that stands out here is that um, through the years, I've come to really appreciate the fact that single people bear this burden alone. And so sometimes it's like, I'll have somebody sitting in my office and they'll say, I can't do this by myself. And you're like, you're right, you can't. So how can I help? And sometimes that's like, let me walk your dog. Let me like whatever it is, right? Because these things um, are, are burdens either for yourself or they're shared, right? Um, and then there's this question of the flourishing of family, church, and society. And that's actually ordered in that way for a reason. First is the family. So marriage directly affects the question of how the family flourishes. So if you're looking for, you know, the basis of a healthy family system, it's always found in a healthy marriage or, or a marriage that's at least trying to be healthy, right? Um, many, some of you may uh, come from, uh, from families in which divorce was the norm or where divorce comes all generations or many generations, um, and, and you know that there's this sort of disruption of that life in a certain sense. Um, and even if you can say, well, that is something that probably should have happened, right? You can still say there was a disruption involved. Um, first family, then church, right? So healthy marriages make for a healthy church. I'll just say that, right? Um, and you can see that when you see it, you know it. Um, because listen, what do healthy, what do healthy married, married couples do? Let me just make this really clear. If, you're, if, if you've got a man and woman who are in an unhealthy marriage, they turn inward on each other. And they are more concerned with how things are going in their family and in their life than they are about others. When they're healthy, they're communicating. They, are, they tend to be outwardly focused um, because their common life together is solid. Um, and this allows for things like hospitality, caring for the poor, caring for their children, caring for their neighborhood, all those kinds of things that happen, right? Um, that's a big deal thing. And that leads to a healthy society. Okay? Um, so we're, we're facing a time in our society where, where the society is disrupted by this in a major way, um, major way. All right. Now, we thought in the 50s, hey, having no-fault divorce and having all these really interesting things and messing with our bodies and changing our uh, sexual chemistry uh, is going to be great for us. We're all, we'll finally be free of the shackles of this tyrannical system, right? And what's been the case? It's not been pretty. It's not been pretty. Um, and, uh, and, and actually, uh, some, of the, some of the predictions about where things would go have been, have been found to be very... Um, very apt. They've, they've, they've turned out to be the case. All right. Husband and wife enter into this covenant by exchanging vows before God and in the presence of witnesses. So uh, the final thing we say is that um, witnesses are necessary to marriage vows um, because uh, you, you kind of have to say, well, this actually happened, right? Um, and so uh, I was actually sitting with a couple of, they're thinking about getting engaged yesterday. And I said, hey, from my perspective, the bare minimum is you two show up with a marriage license that was issued 30 days or more ago, and you have two witnesses, and that's it. Like <laughs> That's all that's required, and you have to go through peer marriage counseling. That's all that's required on my end. 
Um, anything you want to add on top of that, like a, like a cake or a dress or whatever it might be, is entirely up to you. But the bare minimum is witnesses. And the reason that's there is that the witnesses are meant to uh, basically be a recourse when they decide, eh, let's back out of that. So what I do is I actually have them sign my register book. The witnesses sign. They're usually the, the maid of honor and the, and the best man. And they sign the book. And they put in their address and phone number. And I tell them, if anything goes wrong, I'm going to call you. And I'm just going to say, you need to call them. And I want you to remind them what you saw on this date. That's it. Full stop. Like, that's all you got to do. Just call them and say, hey, remember three years ago when X happened and we were there on that day? I remember it. You said such and such. <laughs> it's that simple, right? Um, now, of course, a lot of things have to happen beyond that. But when they're tempted to back out, when things go horribly wrong, uh, the witnesses are there to call them back to it. Um, why? Well, because marriage doesn't just affect husband and wife. It affects the whole community, the whole church, everything. Um, it's all bound up in that. All right. So they exchange those vows. And what's, what's signified in the exchange of vows? This is a big one. Okay. Well, you, I can't fault you for not knowing it. This is very normal. Okay. So uh, basically what's signified is their consent to each other. So Thomas Aquinas says that consent actually makes a marriage. Um, today we think, well, we talked about the whole language of consent is used for a totally different purpose. What it's about? It's about whether or not two people who aren't married can have sex without doing something terribly wrong, right? And then we got to have a panel that goes in at the university and tries to figure out what went wrong on the date. Why? because we're talking about consent outside of marriage rather than consent's proper place, which is within marriage. Got it? Okay. So it's in the vows that, these, that this consent is offered. And by the way, that doesn't mean you can do whatever you want after the marriage. It means that you enter into this mutual consent, which is binding. You say, I will do these things until I'm dead. Okay. Um, and when you take that consensual question outside of marriage, you have all the other issues surrounding that. All right, um, so can we move on to what is signified? So the, the, in every sacrament, you have, you have the, um, the, uh, the outward and spiritual, or the outward and physical sign, right? Um, the outward and visible sign. And then you have the inward and spiritual grace, the thing signified. And that sign is actually more than just kind of like a symbol, because actually sign is not a symbol. Um, sign is bigger than that. <laughs> um, Symbols actually are pretty obvious, right? Like, look around the church, you'll see a bunch of crosses. Like, there are crosses in stained glass windows. What's the cross a symbol of? The cross, right? It's pretty obvious. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just all there. Um, a sign's a little bit different in the sense that it actually, uh, in, the, in the classical language, actually communicates the thing that it's pointing towards. Um, and so the, the thing signified in marriage is dealt with here. What is signified in marriage? The union of husband and wife in one flesh signifies the communion between Christ, the heavenly bridegroom, and the church, his holy bride. Not all are called or able to marry, but Christians, oh, there we go, are joined to Christ as members of his body. Okay, I'm going to try to keep this here. All right, um, just a few things here. The union of husband and wife in one flesh. Now, 
it's an obvious question, is do the two become one flesh? Do they become like Siamese twins? Well, obviously not. How are they one flesh? Okay. Think, think biblically about this, right? How is it that in the early pages of Scripture, Adam and Eve have a physical relationship that is marriage? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Yeah, she's taken from him. That's what woman means. It's taken from man, right? Now, I realize that's horribly patriarchal, and I apologize for that, but I'm not going to apologize for what Scripture is actually saying here, which is that when Adam looks at her, he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. What he does is, and this is really important because it's highly theological, he's, he recognizes her in himself. Okay. By the way, if you want to know when you found the one, that should be what you think. Is This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's like, it's, it's what C.S. Lewis says about love. It's like, you too, that's what it is. Right? It's, I recognize myself in you. Um, and, and Adam recognizes himself in his wife. Um, and the two become one flesh in sense because they already are as, as man, capital M, and woman, capital W. Okay? They come together in this way. Now, of course, sex enters into it, and you're right to notify that, right? That's actually how that physical union in one flesh happens is through this physical union. Um, but that's just the sign, right? What does it signify? Well, it signifies the communion. So what is communion? being as one, right, uh, between Christ, the heavenly bridegroom, and the church, his holy bride. So uh, I occasionally put up in the slides this wonderful icon that comes from Italy, and it's this uh, picture of man and woman. They're leaning into each other, and they're kind of looking like this, right? But their heads are facing you, so they're leaning towards each other, and they're, they're, they're kind of looking at each other, but not really. They're actually looking out. And then above them is the image of the Holy Spirit as a dove, and then above that is this image of Christ and the church seated together. And the church is depicted as Mary, actually, which can sort of be weird if you're thinking about it because it's like, well, she's his mother and yet she's the church and they're married and how's that work? And like, well, just stick with it, right? Because that's actually what's being portrayed, right? Is Mary is an image of the church because she's the first Christian. Okay, we, we see all this, right? She opens herself up to the word. She conceives the word in her womb, right? This is what the church does continually. Okay, so above that, you have the father. And the, the point of this is to show you that in husband and wife is portrayed as a, a hidden, invisible reality, which is Christ and his church. And this is what marriage signifies. And it's what Paul says in Ephesians. Uh, this, this mystery is a profound one. And I'm saying, he says, that it, that it relates to Christ and his church. Um, the church is depicted as the bride of Christ. Um, you'll see that uh, not only in Genesis, when you have this bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right? This is really key. Also, when you look at Christ and the church, Jesus looks at the church. This is just me kind of being fanciful, but it, it works. So here it goes. He looks at his church and he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Why? Because he recognizes himself in his church, okay. um, which is something to kind of think about, right? And, and we have this wonderful communion, right, with Christ in the church, 
which is in the Eucharist. Um, the church is joined to Christ uh, by the washing of water with the word. Um, Paul makes explicit reference to this in Ephesians 5 when he says um, that, that uh, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, having, uh, let me just, I'll read it to you. My memory, my scripture memory is off today, so you don't get to hear me just sort of like go off on Ephesians 5. Okay. Uh, husbands, it's Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Okay. So what's he making reference to? Baptism. That the cleansing of the Christian, which is actually how the church is continually created, right? Um, and in fact, this is the reason that uh, churches have all, almost always historically treated their baptismal fonts as a kind of womb. Are you bored? Okay, this is good. This is good stuff, okay? The, the baptismal font is a kind of womb. And you'll note this. On the Easter Vigil, something really mysterious and also kind of racy happens, which is that that, pa look back there, that Paschal candle is dipped three times into the water of the baptismal font to bless the water, okay? Let's just be clear about this. This is sexual imagery, okay? The, the incarnate Christ in his risen body, signified by the candle, is entering into the womb of the church to impregnate it, okay? That's what's going on in that. And then you have baptisms, okay? This is, this is highly racy image. Well, why is it racy? Because everything we do in the church is racy. Everything we do in the church has a kind of uh, sexual component to it, okay? And if you don't notice it, let me just kind of give you a few, a, few, a few images here, okay? Processions down the aisle, led by a cross. What's going on here? This is a kind of covenantal enactment, right? It's like Abraham and the, and the fire pots, kind of. Uh, and you'll even see that uh, uh, in normal times when it's not COVID, we sing the great litany in procession in a figure eight around these pews. Why? Because that's how the, uh, how the lampposts moved around the pieces of the dead animals in, uh, in Genesis. Um, which, is, which is, again, it's not just a, a, a kind of like bare covenant. What's going on is there's something greater going on here, which is that um, uh, there's a kind of marriage covenant being enacted between uh, God and Abraham, actually. It's really super wild. Um, okay. So we're good so far? This is, kind of, this is kind of nuts. Like, we have candles on the altar. Well, why? Because the Eucharist is a kind of romantic dinner, right? Like, think about dating relationships, and you have a candlelit dinner. What is this meant to do? I would actually say it's kind of like an eschatological image of what might come later if everybody sticks with it, right? You have this beautiful candlelit dinner, and then you think, hey, uh, you know, here we are. We're sharing a meal together. That's a very intimate thing to do. Okay? We're sharing a meal together. Candles are lit. This is very, 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 uh, you know, mysterious and alluring. And guess what's going to happen if we stick with it? We'll have a lifetime of candlelit dinners, and we'll do a lot of other things by candlelight, okay? Like, that's what's going on here. Um, we've forgotten all this because we have light bulbs now, and we flip switches, and None of that makes sense to us anymore, but it made sense back then, right? Um, it made sense a while back. Okay, I'm, I'm going on. I'm, I'm floating. Okay, 
Now, we say this really clearly, not all are called or able to marry, but all Christians are joined to Christ as members of his body. Okay, so this is really important. All right, not all are called, so we use that first word, which is that God calls people to marriage. It's a calling, it's a vocation. Now, having said that, he doesn't call everyone to marriage, and some people will never be married, and they have no calling to be married. They're called to the life of uh, singlehood or, um, or um, called to be unmarried or not married, um, and that has its own vocational set of things going on as well, right? Which is, am I called to live this, uh, this single life in community, or am I called to live it alone, or am I called to live it um, with a family or in a family or however that might be, right? There's all of that going on. The other thing that's got to be said, too, is that um, the, the single life, according to Paul, is superior to the married life. Well, why? That's right, yeah. So, so a, married, a married man in particular, he's really worried about men. Uh, he's not so worried about women, but he's worried about, like, you're going to care more about your wife than you care about God. Uh, and so he's like, I think it's best if you stay as you are. Um, now, if you burn with passion, what do you do? Yeah, get married. You're not sinning by doing that. But try to pursue this, this, this life of singlehood. Um, and I would actually tell you, you know, one of the best ways to discern if you're called to marriage is to actually pursue singlehood. Just straight up, like, be like, I'm, I'd like to be single. That would be awesome. Um, now, I know that's really hard, especially if you're not really called to it and you really feel like, you know, I really need to go get married. You know, that's really important. Okay, fine. Go, go, go figure it out. Um, but there's a, there's a sense of peace which overcomes you when, you when you surrender this possibility to God, right? You say, like, uh, either way, right? Is, we're going to figure this out. Okay. Not all are called or, and then this is another just wrench in the works. Are we good? Okay. It's kind of slipping a little bit. Okay. Called or able. So I'm going to say this strongly. Some people are just not able to be married. Um, how, should we, how should we talk about this? Well, um, listen, if you've got a mental illness that you're not really able to figure out or get on the right medication or the right kind of mix of uh, medication and therapy and you're, and you're strung out and you're bipolar and, or whatever it might be, right? And, and there's no way to really get this into control, then it's probably best that you not be married right now, okay? Um, if you are uh, suffering under the weight of immense financial pressures and you're in debt and maybe you're even bankrupt, you probably shouldn't get married at that point. Um, maybe there's something like this that, uh, that, um, you have, uh, responsibilities and obligations that you can't fulfill married. So to be married would mean that you'd have to neglect a bunch of responsibilities that you have that in fact belong to you, right? That would be another able question. Um, another one would be, uh, that something like, well, you're already married, right? <laughs> that would be a, that would be an able question too, right? Um, and, uh, and so all of that is sitting there. Um, and this gets into pretty complex waters down the road, but, but it's basically to say there's some people who are not able to be married. 
Um, and one of the things that has to be done in pre-marriage counseling is to figure that out. Like, are you able to be married? Are you able? Um, are there things that stand in the way? Are there, um, are there addictions that stand in the way? Are there compulsions that stand in the way? I mean, whatever it might be. Um, and, and let's deal with those first, right? And it's not to say never get married. It's to say, let's, let's, get this, let's, let's get this figured out first. And I should say this, sometimes that's just not going to happen. Sometimes it's just, it's really too hard. And, and the best advice that, that, uh, that I can give as a priest is you really shouldn't do this. Um, so there's that. And that doesn't happen often, but it does happen. All right. Not all are called or able to marry, but to marry, but all Christians are joined to Christ as members of his body. So there's this wonderful language in the prophets of um, you shall call your land married, right? It's this really wild thing that's going on where, where uh, the prophets are saying basically like, hold up, you know, Israel, you're married. That's you. Uh, think of Hosea, right? Hosea is a great example of this and how this language works. Um, it's you're married and you are adulterous. <laughs> you're the problem. Uh, straighten it up, right? Uh, all of this comes in. And, and the reason I say this is that actually the church fathers are even better about this. Um, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of, um, of uh, Gregor of Nyssa, who says basically, every Christian is essentially female before God. That's the level at which that marriage relationship levels out, right? Um, and of course, there's all of this there's all of this imagery built into liturgy as well. Um, if you've ever been to a super high Anglo-Catholic or Roman Catholic church, they wear lace. Why? Because it's like, when I put all these vestments on, I kind of cease to be male for a while. I become actually kind of like an image of the church that is female. And I know that's weird, but there it is. Like that's 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 as that's as much as I can tell you about it. So every Christian is, is supposed to have this kind of um, uh, uh, how should I put it? Yeah, a, a kind of female orientation towards God. And I know that we're not supposed to talk like that anymore, but I'm still saying it. Like this is important stuff. Because listen. And I know I'm going to get into totally gender area that's going to drive people crazy, but here it is. Like, it's in the nature and in the body. Like, this is the thing you've got to get. And John Paul II is so good about this in Theology of the Body, but it's written in our bodies what we are, how we're supposed to be, right? Like, marriage is, in a sense, about plumbing, okay? And how plumbing fits, okay? And I would simply say to you that um, when we think about what it means to be female, it means to be one who receives, um, one who is in a receptive posture. Okay. Now, that's not always the case, but, but generally speaking, like it's a receptive posture. Um, and that's the posture of a Christian, right? We receive the word of God. We receive the gift of faith. We receive God's grace. We're constantly receiving right? Not so much doing, not so much conquering, not so much like going out and adventuring and slaying things and all that. It's, it's about receiving, right? And there's a virtue in that. There's a goodness in that. Um, and, and 
in all honesty, this is why actually I would say, like Christian believing comes more naturally to women than it does to men. Because women are like, how can I receive this well? And men tend to be like, how can I conquer all this? Like, it's not really the position that we should be in. And, it, and it's really hard to kind of change over time to become more receptive to God in that sense. This is why kind of mystical prayer, I think, historically has often just been far more, um, has come far more naturally, especially women saints, right? Like I'm thinking here of Julian of Norwich, Teresa of Avila, uh, Teresa of Lisieux, people like that. Like they are, it just comes so naturally because they just see themselves in this light. Okay. I apologize for any inherent sexism in that. Okay. Not really. Okay. <laughs> what grace does God give us in marriage? In Christian marriage, God unites husband and wife and blesses their common life that they may grow together in love, wisdom, and godliness, patterned on the sacrificial love of Christ. A Christian marriage embodies this grace in the world, especially through hospitality and care for those who are lonely or in need. All right. This is simply to say that God unites by his grace husband and wife and blesses their common life. Um, so one way to think of it is that... that, that uh, what husband and wife set out to do in the natural sense is be joined in one flesh, to have sex, to have babies, all that, right? But they also, in Christian marriage, seek God's blessing upon this relationship, that it may do something not only natural, but supernatural, above the natural, okay? So um, this is why Christians have spoken regularly of the difference between natural and sacramental marriage. So natural marriage is just like, man and woman living together in, the single, in this estate and, and doing all the things that married people do. Supernatural marriage is that plus all this other stuff, which is largely focused on grace. It's this question of how do they see themselves? Um, how do they function within the church? Um, a natural marriage has often been understood to become a sacramental marriage, not in having a church wedding, but in actually, uh, usually the baptism and conversion of husband and wife. That's how a natural marriage becomes a supernatural marriage. Um, and these distinctions are important because it, it, it's asking the question of, well, what does it signify and how does it signify that? And how does it become that? Well, it becomes that because God's grace is, is active in it. The Holy Spirit is active in the, in the institution. All right. That they may grow together in love, wisdom, and godliness, patterned on the sacrificial love of Christ. And this is what the difference really is between what we might say is Christian marriage and natural marriage. Now, the two have a great deal to do with each other. Right? And they are the same thing, actually. Um, but this sacrificial love of Christ, this is why I, I do this regularly. When, when a couple gets married at Christ Church, I, I actually, we have a whole stock of that crucifix. And, and we just give it to the, to the new couple. Right? And we say, hang this in your house. Hang this over your bed. Why? Because there will be a time when marriage is so rough and so difficult that you feel like you're being crucified. Now, it's never that bad, but... It's just a reminder that that's the kind of love you need to have, not the kind of love that's like, oh, he is so wonderful, or oh, she's so great, and I'm so, no, 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 stop, stop. Like, sacrificial love is the pattern for marriage, always, okay. A Christian marriage embodies this grace in the world, especially through hospitality and care for those who are lonely or in need. Um, and this is so utterly important. Um, one of the things that Christian marriage enables is a household of hospitality and care for those who have need. Consider it for a moment, right? Just think about it. I'm a single man, if I was, right? 
and I like have a next door neighbor who's single, she. And I say, why don't you come over to my house for dinner? There's, there, now, listen, if I'm a priest, too, would that be scandalous? I think so. Okay, let's just say that, right? It's scandalous. Now, I'm, you know, I'm not talking about the Billy Graham rule or anything. I'm just saying that might be scandalous. We shouldn't do that. But married with kids, can we have a single woman over to our house? Absolutely. Totally. We totally should. We will. We do. Um, and that's not to say we're just doing this to avoid scandalous. To say it makes all of it possible. Um, one of the things that I find, too, is my wife and I share the cooking duties in our house. And very often, if you come over to my house for dinner, you'll find, like, I'm cooking and she's in the living room talking to you. Or it's the other way around. She's cooking the dinner and I'm out in the living room saying hi and, 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 and starting the conversation. But it's to say that our common life together makes this hospitality possible. Now, is this to say that single people cannot offer hospitality? Not at all, right? Not at all. It's just to say that it enables this kind of thing. Um, the other thing that, that we've kind of lost in our contemporary discussions of marriage, pr primarily because uh, now this idea of, of, a, of a dual income household is the norm, at least in terms of expectation, um, we're not realizing the economies of scale that marriage enables. Okay, so for most of human history, marriage has enabled an economy of scale. Okay, think about it for a moment. And this is most clear in divorce. So when you think about divorce, what happens? Well, now he's got to go get his own place to live, and she's going to, you know, maybe find her own place to live. And then they have two rents, two mortgages, and not just one. So there's expense there. They're going to have two grocery bills. They're going to have to go grocery shopping separately. They're going to have to do all these things separately. They're going to have to have separate health insurance, separate this, separate that, right? And, and down the road, it becomes terribly expensive, right? Um, well, there's an expense involved. Um, and what we find is that this economy of scale really happens. And it happens especially when um, you've got kids. Because look, first kid's expensive. Second kid, not so expensive. Third kid, not very expensive at all. Fourth kid, cheap, right? That's an economy of scale. Um, if you have one kid, well, you're going to spend a lot of money. If you have two kids, well, you're going to spend a little bit more. Like, <laughs> that's just how it works, right? And so this is actually an economically beneficial relationship that allows for, by the way, oikos, the Greek word, is the word where you get economy. It refers to the household. Um, and what happens is that in the Christian household, all these things are enabled. Hospitality, uh, having extra money, having extra kind of things that you can do with XYZ. Does this, is this helpful? Right now, all of you bear the burden of singleness, and God bless you. Right, um, but but as you think about marriage, you should ask one of the questions: Is would this be a financially beneficial thing, and what does that enable us to do that it wouldn't have enabled us to do otherwise? Does that make sense? Another thing too is, um, let me just let me just say this: Like, I've got seven kids. I'm not worried about what retirement's going to look like. Because one of those kids will probably have to take care of me or my wife down the road, right? And that actually creates another kind of economy of scale. There's all these kinds of things that happen. Um, and, and this is why when marriage crumbles, it's bad for society. Full stop. And this is actually something that's been lost in the, I'm just going to keep going because it's so important. It's such a key issue. This is something that's been lost in our contemporary debate. We think, well, who cares if marriage goes off the rails as long as we Christians maintain it? Well, 
We can just say it's bad for society, okay? It's just bad. It's like all bad. Um, and we should try to protect and, and keep our societies as healthy as possible. Like we have a duty to do that because we actually, we actually love our neighbor. Right? This is why public policy you know, is not something we just ignore. Um, now, we should be detached from it, but we can't just ignore it. It's really important. All right. Any thoughts, any questions before we move on? This is actually the teaching of scripture, I should say this as well, that, that God takes the lonely and he does what? He sets them in families. Okay. Now, this is why I'll just lay all my cards on the table and say that I think just about everybody ought to discern the question of, is there a way for me to live in community with other people? Because that's, that's like best, right? And I'll just say that strongly. And some of you might say, I really like living alone. It's really, it's really important to me. I really enjoy it. It's like, fine. But... There are ways to live alone and also have a community around you that can support you, right? That can be really important in your life. Okay. And, and do things like, you know, when you have wisdom teeth removed, bring you home from the dentist. Like, it's stuff like that. These things are really important because it's how you flourish. It's how you say, like, I don't have to worry about that because so-and-so's got that. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about absolution because it's Lent and we're right in the midst of it. Okay, we're going to probably, let's just wrap all this up today, but I want to say a few things here. What is absolution? In absolution, a priest acting under God's authority pronounces God's forgiveness in response to repentance and confession of sin. I'm going to turn your attention to John chapter 20. This is actually referenced right there. John chapter 20, verses 22 to 23. Now, I'll just give you the sense of it. <laughs> Jesus breathes on the apostles, and he says, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they are retained. Okay. What's going on here? Well, it's, it's pretty much the case that the apostles believe that they have the authority to remit sins in the name of Jesus, they also have the authority to restore people who have left the church or apostatized or have committed such grave sin that they've been cut off from the fellowship of the church to receive them back. And this happens throughout the centuries. And in the early centuries, um, this Lent was actually the time when notorious sinners who had been separated from the church could be received back. How'd they do that? Well, they camped out on the doors of the church with sackcloth and ashes and were basically instructed to beat their breasts and wail. That's where we get Ash Wednesday. That's actually where it comes from, is, is uh, Christians saying, hey, like, it really isn't right that the notorious sinners are outside the church, like, beating their breasts and, and uh, putting ashes on their foreheads and wearing sackcloth. You know, we're, we're sinners too. So maybe we should, like, put ashes on our foreheads to be one with them. Got it? Like, that's where it comes from. It's because what would happen at the end of Lent is that the bishop would restore them to that fellowship. Now, this became a problem, and the problem, if I can just kind of lay it all out, is this. So we have what's in Scripture, which is the authority to forgive sin, right? It's pretty clear that Jesus gives this to his apostles, and then we ask, well, how does that keep going? Well, the, the apostles pass it on to their successors. But something happens through this that's really kind of hard to, it's hard to imagine, but here it is. Because of this penance being so difficult, people are delaying baptism. And one of the things the church fathers talk about is like, hey, I get why you're delaying baptism. The penances are awful. They're really hard. But 
don't think that on your deathbed you can just call for us to come baptize you and we'll make it on time, because we might not. We get busy. This is John Chrysostom, actually. says says that exact thing. We're like you. We get busy. And there are things that we just can't get there on time. Like, sorry, that's the case. It's really hard. But, you know, think about that, because you ought to get baptized at Easter. I think that's, that's the answer. Okay. Well, what's the problem? The problem is, yeah, eh, I think I'm good. That's what people are saying. They're saying, yeah, probably, yeah, it's okay. No, I'll pass. So there's this big problem. Like, if I've got to make public penance and I've got to make a public confession before the whole church and then be absolved and then be welcomed back in, then I'm just going to delay baptism. So what happens is that there's this kind of pastoral and theological response to this crisis. And And the pastoral and theological response is this. Provide another way to be reconciled to the church through private confession. And so private confession becomes the norm in about six, seven centuries. And by the 11th century, it's considered mandatory in the West that everyone make their confession at least once a year. And this is actually something that Anglicans push back on and say, no, that shouldn't be the way it is. If you're Eastern Orthodox, there are people who make the confession every week after Vespers on Saturday nights. So just kind of keep that in mind, right? This is something that's just normal. It's normal in the Christian tradition. Well, why? Well, because it's clear that sin doesn't stop after baptism. We continue to sin, right? And we recognize that by our sin, we cut ourselves off from the fellowship of the church. We cut ourselves off from being able to receive communion rightly. And we bear a weight of conscience that's got to be dealt with. Well, what's on offer? Well, what's on offer is absolution, (laughs) not uh, kind of like, hey, you're a terrible sinner, so go dig a ditch, right? Like, it's not penance, it's absolution that's on offer. Um, And that's the major shift, is that the, the, the shift goes from saying, wail at the doors of the church in sackcloth and ashes to you're penitent, you're definitely repenting, you want to be restored to communion and fellowship of the church, we're going to offer you absolution. And we're going to do so in a way that doesn't embarrass you. So here's the, here's the big clincher. It's like, think about this. Think about, think about um, an ancient society where like, you've done some things that, like, well, I, you know, I stole from you. Like it's the Easter, it's Easter. It's like, the, it's Holy Saturday. And I got to sit there and I got to be like, Libby, I know you don't know who stole your car a month ago. It was me. Like, <laughs> there's a reason for private confession, right? It's that it, it makes it so that that doesn't have to happen, right? Now, I as a priest, if I hear, you know, oh, you stole Libby's car, it's like, you should find a way to get it back to her. And it might be that you go to your mailbox and you find your keys and your car parked out in front of your house. And it's like, wow, like something good happened here. This is what's supposed to happen, actually, is that there's supposed to be this like, we're not keeping track anymore. Because actually, this is is what I'd say, is that the, the sacrament involved in absolution and confession is the outworking of the gospel in the lives of sinners. Just put it up there, big terms. Okay, well, let's, let's ask the next question. What grace does God give to you in absolution? In absolution, God conveys his pardon through the cross, removes and cancels my sin, declares me reconciled, and at peace with him and grants me the assurance of his grace and salvation. Okay, break this down a little bit. God conveys his pardon through the cross. So what do you do in confession? You go to the foot of the cross with this sin that you have, and you say, I've got it. I don't know what to do about it. I'm tired of carrying it myself. I can't carry it myself. I'm going to make a mess of things if I keep trying to. Okay? 
and you surrender it at the foot of the cross. That's what you do. Because here's the thing. The church teaches this very strongly. Without God's grace, you can't do anything right. You're going to make a mess of it every time. You try on your own, you're going to make a mess. You are guaranteed to make a mess if you do it on your own. So what do you do? You say, eh. By God's grace and because of God's grace, I'm just going to take this to him and let go of it. I'm just going to surrender it. Okay. In a lot of ways, this is actually like just taking out the trash. Okay. So every Thursday morning, I wheel, or sometimes Wednesday night, I wheel the trash cart out to the street. And I forget about it until I've got to pull the cart back up into, the street, back up into my driveway. Do I worry about what they do with my trash and my recycling? Not at all. What's my job? Take it to the street. I let someone else deal with it. Okay. This, is, this is kind of where, I, and I, don't, I use this word kind of like devoid of any other meaning than what's, what I'm actually saying, which is, this is kind of the magic of confession, right? It's, I recognize, I can't do anything about this, right? So I'm just gonna take it, and I'm gonna put it in front of you know, the cross and a priest, and I'm going to ask for counsel, direction, and absolution. Those three things. The weight I bear is this. To not judge you. To offer you complete compassion. As a sinner, okay? To offer counsel and direction. So it might be like, well, you know, um, as an objective kind of thing. And I'm not wrapped up in this. I don't, you know, I'm not living your life. It's like, you should think about this. And that can be very helpful but it's not the point. The point is absolution. I say, hey, you come here and you think in your heart of hearts, I can't be forgiven of this. This is too bad. It's too awful. It's too terrible. It's, goes, it's really bad, right? And I say, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, offered, who has given power to his church to resolve all sinners who truly repent and believe in him, of his great mercy may forgive you all your offenses, and by his authority committed to me, I absolve you from all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I say, the Lord's put away all your sins. And you say, thanks be to God. And I say, go in peace and pray for me a sinner. And that's it. That's how it works. Now, is it because I know all about it? No, no, it's not about that. Um, but in a sense, you're dropping it off at the curb and I'm taking responsibility for it. Because this is the fun part. Who takes responsibility for your sin as a Christian? You? No. The church, the body of Christ, takes responsibility for you, sinner. Because she's joined to Christ who takes responsibility for your sin. Do you see what's going on here? Look, this is the, this is the joy of confession is that you no longer take responsibility for your sin. You just simply say like, hey, I can't do anything about it. I need help. Okay. So, God conveys his pardon through the cross, removes and cancels my sin, puts it as far as the east is from the west. Um, now, You'll leave confession kind of thinking like, is it really that far? And then here's, if you've never done it before, this is the glorious kind of thing that happens when you're first making your confession. It's like, you'll, you'll, you'll wake up one morning two weeks later and you'll be like, oh, wow, I haven't done that in two weeks? Like, that's the longest period of relief from this sin I've ever had. And you think, this is amazing. And then you think, I'm doing really well. I probably don't need to go anymore. That's precisely when you need to go. Right? So, so, but hear that, that, that you actually are released from these things. They are canceled. The power of them is canceled. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up really quickly. 
and we'll do anointing of the sick before we move on to the Lord's Prayer next week. All right. Declares me reconciled and at peace with him and grants me the assurance of his grace and salvation. Um, what, is what is necessary to receive the grace of absolution? Repentance, in which I intend to resist further sin, accept responsibility for my actions, and endeavor, and endeavor to repair damage I have caused, and faith, by which I thankfully receive God's forgiveness. Okay. So people have often asked me, like, how repentant do I really have to be in order to make a real confession? And this is, this is a fun one. Not very. Not very. Imperfect contrition for sin is the only thing that's required. You say, well, what's that like? It's like, all you have to do is say, I did all this and I'm sorry. That's it. I don't want to do it anymore. I intend amendment of life. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't even have a plan, right? That's okay. Because you're seeking God's grace. That's all you're seeking. Okay, so hear that really strongly. It's like, you don't have to actually be like, I am never going to do this again, right? What you have to say is, I'd really like it if I didn't have to do this again. Like, I'd really love it if God could give me the grace necessary to never do this again. Okay, that'd be great. Like, that's enough. Now, a word about the seal, and then I'm going to wrap it up quickly. Okay, the seal simply means that I cannot ever say anything about what's said in confession. And I can never even act on the content of confession. You might say, well, how far does this go? And I'll say, it goes very far. By the time I'd been a priest for nine months, I'd heard every one of the Ten Commandments confessed, including murder. Nine months. It didn't take long. Furthermore, unless you have had, uh, unless you've robbed a, a, a Wells Fargo wagon, like nothing you say will shock me. Period. Because in the last 16 years, I've heard everything. Like, there's no such thing as original sin, okay, in that sense. <laughs> you are not going to surprise me. You're not going to shock me. It just doesn't happen. Okay. Another thing is, if you came to confession and you said, Father, <laughs> I'm here for confession. Like, by the way, the noon Eucharist, when's the noon Eucharist is going to happen at that altar? And I put a bomb under the altar. <laughs> It's going to go off at about 12.15. I'm the celebrant. What do I do? I go to the altar. I pray the prayers. I can't act on it. Why? That seems, that seems like suicide. Maybe. But here's the thing. We, we don't think like God thinks. Um, God puts mercy above justice. And this is the perfect example of this. Got it? The reason the seal is kept is so that you'll keep coming and not worry about what I'm going to say or what I'm going to do or how I'm going to handle it. Like, I will be the first one to tell you that the way it works in our diocese is that if I ever broke the seal of confession and you called the bishop, I would be out on my butt within an hour. I'd be packing up my office. I guarantee it. Because we take it that seriously. It's got to be that way. Um, even if you come to me afterwards and you say like, hey, Father, you remember what we were talking about a few days ago? And uh, I'd be like, no, I don't. You have to remind me. Can't say anything about it. What does this do? Well, it protects you. It protects you in this grace of God that's given so abundantly. And so that's, that's the point I want to make. Um, it is, it's absolute with regard to everything. I, can't, I just cannot act on the content of confession, period. I can't even say if you came. 
Okay. And, and the reality of it is they might, they might put me in jail for that and I would say, fine, put me in jail. Right? Because if a case is based entirely on my testimony of what you said in a confession, it's a weak case. So I'll just say that. Okay? Full stop, that's where it is. Um, certain people in society have to be in the position of being the ones that maintain this kind of reality. Um, and, and, and my job as a priest is not to dispense justice. It's to dispense God's mercy and forgiveness. Okay. We'll pick up next week with, absolute, with, uh, with anointing of the sick.